It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hi, I'm Jake from Locked On. For the love of Pete, it's something you might say when your car gets damaged, but that won't get you the help you need for your vehicle. As someone named Jake, what you should be saying is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. For help filing your claim 24-7, whether it's on the phone, online, or on the award-winning State Farm mobile app, however you choose. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. It's Tommy Heinsohn Part 2, and we're going back to the 1970s when he became a Hall of Fame coach. It's the Friday Lockdown Celtics. Millies, let's go! Happy Friday, everybody. And this is a reminder that it is, in fact, Friday. If you've lost track of your days, this is it. Friday, last podcast of the week. Really one of the better weeks we've had on the Lockdown Celtics podcast. Two Danny Ainge episodes. A Robert Parrish episode. And now the second of two Tommy Heinsohn episodes. This historical deep dive has been just so much fun. And this week, I think, is is where it peaks in the 1980s and this conversation with Tommy Heinsohn, which goes back to the 1970s. This week has been so good that I really think you guys are going to be disappointed if basketball comes back and you just have to hear me blather on about X's and O's and basketball stuff. <laughs> Let's just do this forever. This is a lot of fun. Tommy has been great. Uh, I talked to Tommy Heinsohn the other day for 90 minutes, and I just want to convey and express how lucky I really do feel because I started the week talking to an all-star champion in Danny Ainge. I'm finishing the week with a conversation that I had with a Hall of Fame player and Hall of Fame coach and legendary broadcaster in Tommy Heinsohn. A guy, the only guy that's been around for every one of these championships the Celtics have won. He's been either a player, a coach, or a broadcaster for all of these Celtics championships. And it's really not lost on me how lucky I am to have had these conversations. It's my favorite thing to do in the world is talk basketball with these guys. And I would have gotten even nerdier if, if I really wanted to stray from some of the topics, but we stayed on topic and Tommy in this episode, we go back to him 
taking the job with the Boston Celtics, a job that could have been his instead of Bill Russell's, actually. When Bill Russell became the first black head coach, Tommy was the guy who encouraged Red to give Bill Russell that job. And uh, Tommy was the one who was approached first about that job. We start there and then go on until he gets fired and he turns down a very lucrative job at the end. So here is part two of my conversation with NBC Sports Boston's Tommy Heinsohn. Let's start with you taking the Celtics coaching job, uh, which you did in the 1969-70 season. You took over for Bill Russell. Now, I'd heard that you were offered the job before Bill Russell, that you could have taken the job even sooner. Is that correct? Correct. And why, why and, didn't you? Well, the reason I didn't is uh, Russell and I were contemporaries. And uh, uh, Red Auerbach uh, was masterful in dealing with Russell. And uh, I, I would never be able to have the same rapport with Bill Russell. And when I when Red talked to me about it, I said, uh, nobody's going to get uh, uh, out of Russell what you got out of Russell, Red. Why don't you make Russell a coach? He's so proud he'll he'll, he'll kill himself. <laughs> And uh, that's what he did. So um, I'm sure perhaps I wasn't the only one, but I, I certainly brought it up to him. And, uh, you know, Russell did a uh, terrific job and uh, uh, went out and won a couple of more titles. Yeah, that was, that was a fantastic finish to his career. And then you yeah. step in in the 1969-70 season, and this is for the first time in – more than a decade, a a rebuilding season. It's the first rebuilding season since the beginning of the actual NBA. But there was a little bit of a surprise with Bill Russell's retirement. I'm sure you guys probably felt it was coming soon, but um, re, you, you guys didn't seem to have enough time to prepare for the post-Bill Russell era. Is that correct? Uh, well, uh, I, uh, I talked to Red and... Uh, See, I'd been, I'd gone into the management and uh, the life insurance business. That was my side business while I was a player. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a, a management position there. And uh, uh, Red called me up to do uh, television. Uh, they got a new TV contract and um, asked me to do that. So I was on the scene locally. Uh, with uh, Red, and I was gaining management experience at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, dealing, recruiting, training, and supervising people in the life insurance business. So uh, uh, when uh, we started doing the games, uh, Red ended up doing a couple of years of color work with me. Uh, we only did 25 games a year. They were uh, games on the road. And um, uh, so... Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, the team, and they talked to me every once in a while about talking to this player or that player or whatever, particularly Larry Siegfried, because uh, I had a rapport with Larry, uh, uh, a pretty strong one. <clears throat> and uh, uh, Bill, when Bill Russell uh, 
won the title that year. The final game was out in L.A. And if you remember, Will Chamberlain um, took himself out of the game and in a, um, uh, a, a stupid move by the coach, Bill Von Bredikoff, uh, uh, Wilt was hurt and he was attended to and he wanted to go back in the game and Von Bredikoff wouldn't put him back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> so they had, uh, they had a, uh, we ended up winning the game. So after, you know, the next week, uh, there, uh, you know, Russell was talking to him about the, the series and the whole bit. And that's the first time he ever said anything derogatory about Wilt. Because he was smart enough never to put fuel on the fire. Sure. And, uh, uh, I, you know, he was, he made a comment about Wilt uh, taking himself out of the game, you know. And uh, Wilt got upset about it and <laughs> it all pit. So I knew Russell was going to retire because there was no way Russell was going to <laughs> had ever even come close to saying what he said. And uh, so I, I talked to Red, and uh, I said, Red, uh, if Russell leaves, uh, I'd still be interested, and I'd be interested in a job if you'd still like to have me. And uh, he said, yes. So that's how I got the job. And uh, we lost not only uh, uh, Bill Russell, but Sam Jones quit. Yes. Sort of uh, offense and defense uh, of the team went in one fell swoop. So, uh, <clears throat> I mean, his immediate job was to put, uh, come up with somebody that could at least put sneakers on and play in the center position and um, we, we drafted a kid named, uh, Richie Johnson, who was like a six, nine guy, very skinny, but fast, and, you know, made for up tempo basketball. And we had, uh, uh, we, we got from, uh, San Diego, uh, because of the sick of the Siegfried deal, we traded Siegfried and we ended up with Henry Finkel a seven-footer who could shoot the ball. And then we also had, um, from the year before, uh, Jim Bad News Bonds, who had played with the Knicks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of that uh, Wesleyan team that uh, won uh, NCAA. He was a really good player. So, But he wasn't, uh, he was like 6'8", six, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, and that was uh, our replacement for Bill Russell, one of those guys. And uh, uh, we had people play in the backcourt. Siegfried could play in the backcourt. We had drafted Joe, Joe, Joe White. Don Chaney um, had been drafted the year before. Uh, didn't play much in his rookie year. Uh, so, so we had some talented people, but we also had... Uh, you know, John Havlicek and Don Nelson and Seth Sanders. Uh, so there were some veteran players there that, um, uh, you know, I knew very well from my years of broadcasting and, and playing with them. So uh, I really counted on those guys to help the situation, which they did. But uh, uh, the first season really was spent uh, uh putting together pieces and trying to develop a style of play without Bill Russell. And uh, uh, I was a firm believer in um, up-tempo basketball. 
once I saw how many titles we won with it and how effective it could be on the other team. And um, uh, so I was committed to do that. But how do you do it without uh, one of the best rebounders the game has ever seen in Bill Russell? Uh, so uh, that, that was the challenge. And the challenge was to uh, uh, potentially have some kind of defense where Russell wasn't uh, sitting there blocking a the basket uh, and making uh, offense for the other team difficult. So it was a, it was a, a daunting task to uh, try to get started. Hey guys, it's Walker Mail, host of the Locked On Hornets podcast, and being around sports media and a fan of the Hornets for a lifetime has taught me that sometimes it's exploring the sliding doors moments and what-if scenarios in sports that can be the best part of the fan experience. What if the Seahawks let Marshawn run on the one-yard line with the Super Bowl on the line? Or could a coin flip actually have landed Magic in Chicago, Michael in L.A., and made Charles Barkley the first black president? Enter Wondery's newest sports show, Alternate Routes, a weekly leap into the sports multiverse with former Sports Center anchors Trey Wingo and Kevin Frazier. Each week on the podcast, Trey and Kevin will pry open the sliding doors of a different what if moment from the world of sports. In these alternate sports realities, dynasties will fall, legacies will change forever, new goats will emerge. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Alternate Routes early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You are Locked On Celtics, your daily Boston Celtics podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As you mentioned, those first couple of years, you you did manage to acquire uh, some really important talents. Eventually, these guys became Hall of Fame talent. You get JoJo White. Um, Dave Cowens is, is, I think, one of the guys that sticks out because now Cowens comes in. In addition to the guys that you have, Cowens becomes the guy that you can really play your small ball with. And that the the addition of Cowens in was it seventy one uh, or seventy that that really I think is what starts the seventies Celtics towards their path to eventual championships. Well, uh, first of all, JoJo White um, uh, was a, a top line uh, draft pick, uh, but he had to go into the service so. Uh, he missed uh, like uh, several weeks of the start of the, uh, my first year coaching. And um, uh, Don Chaney hadn't played much. Uh, so uh, going into the second season, well, we ended up with Dave Cowens and uh, another guy by the name of Smith, who uh, was bigger than Cowens and had played in the uh, ABA uh, so we had two guys that potentially could play uh, the center position, uh, but <laughs> I wasn't leaning to Dave Cowens at the time playing the center position because he was a six eight. And uh, uh, when it became evident that Smith was not going to do it, um, and, and I had used Finkel, uh, you know, in, in a uh, 
what I called um, uh, the triple center. Uh, put three guys in and, and try to run out, uh, run off the legs of the other team's bigger centers like Wilt and Bob Lanier and guys like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when we got uh, Dave Cowens, he certainly could do that. He's a fabulous athlete, but he was not going to be a shot blocker, and he was uh, not really an offensive player at that particular point. But he had this enthusiasm, and I mean, he was like, uh, uh, get out of my way, it's my basketball. And uh, he was an aggressive player. So uh, when Smith didn't cut the mustard, we moved Callens from power forward to the center spot. And uh, uh, we played, it enabled us to rebound the ball a little bit better and to also continue to have the speed at the center spot. Now, this, uh, this is the first time that a team used a smaller center. Everybody was trying to get the seven-footers. And nobody had a style of play or developed a style of play to play with a small center. So uh, we, we had to come up with a way for uh, us to um, uh, uh, get the most out of Cowens, which was to use his speed against the, the bigger guys and then against guys relatively his own size, like Willis Reed and players like that, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to use him down in a, in a low post position. So we had two types of offenses, and uh, the, the one against the big guys uh, was very, very effective because we ran the, the other team into the ground because uh, Cowan's, had great stamina like Havlicek, uh, and um, uh, so uh, he was formidable at that position, but he also had to learn how to shoot the ball from the perimeter, and he also had to learn to pass the ball like a point guard. So it took a little bit, but he made the transition beautifully. Uh, in the meantime, JoJo became a fast break point guard, and Don Chaney became a terrific defensive uh, guard and a rebounder, uh, and uh, so we were putting the pieces together. We had Havlicek, uh, we had uh, Don Nelson and Sach Sanders, so we were, uh, in addition to Finkel, so we had enough firepower going on uh, at that particular point to put it, put it into use, so uh, that's uh, uh, really what it took to put the team together, or that was what I saw after the first year. The uh, the year you got to the playoffs, you got back to the playoffs, 71-72, you have, uh, this is like a loaded roster. I mean, you, you got, so as you mentioned, JoJo and Chaney are your backcourt. You've got Cowens as your small ball center. You're running Havlicek out there, Don Nelson, um, Satch, uh, this team, this team is, is is really good. Part of the the running gun, like when I think of you, I think just I, I think of you telling Walter McCarty. I love that clip of Walter coming to check in, and you just look at him. And you're like, "Run, Walter, run!" Like that. <laughs> that is that's you in a nutshell. That's that's you got that from Red. Red was the original fast break guy. You put a, a team together. You guys put a team together that kind of match that play and Havlicek 
is a, a workhorse. You got two guys in Havlicek and Cowens that can run forever. Jojo White could also do it. Uh, but that style of play, and now in 1972, that season, it feels like now this is where it's all starting to come together. Even though you had a disappointment and and you lost in the uh, conference semifinals, but this is the beginnings of okay, we see what's happening here with this Boston team, right? Well, uh, when uh, it, it it came together with the group you just talked about, and um, we we found a way to add some defense to uh, what was a very potent and aggressive uh, offense. And uh, uh, that one season that it kind of clicked, we won 68 games and lost 14, which was a pretty good record. In fact, I think it's still a Celtic record. Uh, for the best season. It is, yeah. And uh, uh, we ended up playing the Knicks in uh, and uh, uh, in the playoffs, and we got knocked off by the Knicks. And John Havlicek uh, missed a couple of games. We were up on him until Havlicek got hurt. And then uh, uh, it went down to a seventh game, and Havlicek played that game lefty and. Uh, uh, it just didn't work out, so we weren't the same. But we then had a style of play that we know we knew was effective, and um, uh, we knew that uh, uh, we coupled that with an aggressive uh, pressure defense. So the, the philosophy that I went in with from the very beginning was to um, uh, take uh, take the desire to win a game away from the other team. Make them have to really work to do it. And uh, uh, when I played on a fast break, we had Bob Cousy. And uh, you got him the ball, and he made the right decisions. I didn't have a Bob Cousy, but in in teaching a fast break, uh, it was quite different than the fast break of, of Red Albacks because uh, we didn't have Russell to gobble up every uh, missed shot at the other end. Um, so uh, we had to pull people back like uh, Cheney, and we had uh, uh, ways that we could rebound to strategies and uh, tactics to uh, uh, out-rebound the other team. And, and much to my surprise, which I never knew before, during one of our broadcasts, uh, uh, they were talking about the teams with, uh, you know, offensive, defensive rebounding and the differential, and somebody looked it up. And my team of that year still holds the record for the best rebound percentage from offense to defense. We, we uh, uh, were eight, eight, point, uh, eight rebounds better. Wow. And it's still the record <laughs> for a season. So... Um, uh, that tells you that uh, the tactic worked. But the I- idea was uh, from uh, playing with Cousy, uh was to create a tempo so that, for instance, if you were going to run a race against the world's greatest marathoner, uh, you'd flat out lose. But suppose that you were able to... Um, uh, put together a relay team to play against the world's, uh, to run against the world's greatest marathoner. Uh, 
what you would do is pace them out of the race. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we try to do. It wasn't uh, in coaching that team. Really, what um, uh, I was trying to do every game is to really keep the tempo at a fever pitch. So uh, what you saw with that little thing was Walter was a, uh, you know, a knowledge that Walter could be a very effective player because he was a speed merchant. So mm-hmm. uh, that's why the team was successful. We married, and then we had, you know, we had um, uh, great, great. Uh, players that accepted the challenge and uh, really uh, wanted to win. So uh, put that all together, and we, we were a pretty good team. And uh, the year that we beat Milwaukee uh, was really interesting in that we got to the finals, and the, the, the Bucks had the, the home court advantage. And um, we had an opportunity to knock them out in the sixth game, and it went into overtime. And uh, uh, Kareem uh, hit a hook shot, and they won the game in overtime. And we had to travel out to um, uh, Milwaukee for the seventh game on a Sunday. And, uh, boy, I can remember sitting in the office after the game, and, and uh, you know, you're a little dejected. It was right in our hands, and it didn't happen. And uh, uh, my assistant coach and Bob Cousy had been at the game, were sitting down and and were talking. And part of my strategy uh, playing uh, uh, the bigger team was to really press them, uh, make uh, somebody else handle the ball other than Oscar, and uh, and uh, create bad passing angles when they try to get the ball to Kareem. Uh, take him you know, one or two steps away from where he liked to be. So we never double teamed him. Uh, we just uh, set up a defense to allow the Collins to play him one on one, and took away a lot of the the ways they try to get him the ball. So uh, it all worked. And Kuzi uh, says, uh, uh, "Why do you, you know, you? Why don't you double Kareem?" And, um, uh, you know, you don't double Kareem, and uh, everybody else in the league doubles Kareem. I said, well, Kuz, there's one thing I I really know that has worked for us is that Kareem wears down. And at the end of the ball game, that's what you're hoping, that Kareem cannot make that hook shot. Uh, and he... Uh, so we, on uh, second thought, as we're talking about this, I'm saying to myself, well, in all my years of ex- an experience of playing in the playoffs, and you get to that situation, I played in some final games, uh, what would you try to do if you were out on the road and uh, it was take the crowd out of the game? So I stopped and I said, Coos, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, uh, double-team him. Uh, and you just provoked the thought that uh, we haven't done it before, and it'll be a secret weapon when we get to the seventh game. And uh, uh, when that happens, uh, we'll hopefully we'll take the crowd out of the game and we'll get get up in front and hopefully we can win the game. Well, 
uh, it worked exactly like I thought it would initially. Uh, we got up by 17 points, and the, the thought was, uh, as we were going along, as Paul Silas went down and doubled Kareem, and that left uh, uh, Warner, uh, their power forward, to have to um, uh, provide a lot of offense. Uh, so uh, afterwards, uh, uh, I made the statement, you know, instead of Kareem being the, all, uh, the, the Hall of Famer, we were going to give Warner an opportunity to make the Hall of Fame. And uh, he wasn't ready for the challenge, and that's how we... We put the heat on, on Kareem, and we and we put the pressure on, on Warner to have to shoot the ball, and uh, it worked out to our favor. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4:55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Follow us on our social channels at LO Celtics on Twitter and at Lockdown Celtics on Instagram. That was considered one of the greatest NBA final series of all time. Um, that the road team won, uh, was it five of those games, uh, which is yeah. wild. Um, you know, an overtime game, a double overtime game. Um, so you get the Celtics back. Uh, win a championship, and then two years later, you you go from the maybe the best final series ever to the the best finals game ever. Let's let's talk a little bit about that seventy six um, finals, the triple overtime game, and your decision in that game to turn to Glenn McDonald at the end. Well. Uh... We uh, we played, faced Phoenix, and Phoenix uh, had a rookie, uh, Alton Adams, who was the almost a duplicate of Dave Cowens without without the fire. He, they were using him similarly to the way we were using Cowens, and he was a very good player. He ended up being rookie of the year, if I remember correctly, and uh, uh, they were the underdogs coming in, uh, so. Uh, we, we were not playing the same style of basketball that we had against everybody else. We were playing against a team that actually was mimicking what we did. Plus, we we were playing on it against a team that had one of the guys, Paul Westfall, who was part of the uh, championship team and had been a solid con- 
distributor, and he'd been with us a couple of years. Uh, so he, he knew all the things that we would do. And um, so we got down to uh, uh, the first two games we won easily, and we put pressure on them, and we got to Phoenix, and they won the next two games mainly because uh, the officiating uh, really took a different turn and uh, they have been complaining along with their newspapers about us manhandling uh, their people. And in that uh, one of those games in Phoenix, they they call a record number of fouls against us. <laughs> and uh, I was scratching my head, how the hell did that all happen? But uh, anyway, we lost the two there. And um, we came back to Boston, and the fifth game then became a crucial game. Well, we got off to a fabulous start, and uh, they just kept pecking away, and Paul Westfall, and uh, they, they were really uh, uh, made a fabulous comeback. And uh, uh, in that ball game, uh, we had, I don't know how many opportunities to win the game in regulation, and we just weren't hitting the shots. Uh, so it ends up go, uh, you know, going into overtime. And uh, from there on in was uh, something special because guys started fouling out of the ball game, and we ended up uh, uh, in the third overtime having to utilize uh, a guy that played, who was a rookie and who played uh, uh, unusually minimal uh, time. He was a backup to Havlicek. Uh, you know, keep speed in a lineup, a lineup at the uh, quick forward position. And uh, so he had played, and he played in, I guess, almost every game. But uh, you wouldn't say he was a seasoned player. But, uh, boy, he came to light in that game and uh, made some big baskets and played like uh, a guy that had been around 10 years. And also forced to play, Collins fouled out and Silas fouled out. Uh, we were forced to play Jim Ard. And uh, Jim Ard was uh, uh, a, a quick center, not uh, you know, not a big, tall guy. He was about 6'9", but he could shoot the outside shot. And um, he came into the, forced into the game because of the uh, foul situation. And um, he, he really produced, made uh, some key baskets, and he really made a couple of big free throws. So uh, we had played those guys during the season. They had all had, you know, fairly significant playing time, uh, but they really produced uh, in, uh, in in that third quarter, in that third overtime. What was going through your mind when Paul Silas tried to call a timeout uh, with three seconds to go in the fourth quarter, and the game tied, and you had no timeouts? Well, I knew we were going to get a, uh, a technical foul out of it. And, uh, you know, uh, they, what I thought was going to happen is that they'd have to take the ball uh, out of bounds in the backcourt. And, uh, you know, we'd have a shot. And all of a sudden, I find out they're going to put the ball in play at half court. Now, uh, I don't think anybody was really aware uh, except maybe Paul Westfall. <laughs> and you could 
call a timeout, give up a technical illegal timeout, and still gain the advantage of getting the ball at half court. And that was the argument that was going on. But it, it was ultimately changed that summer that uh, you couldn't get an advantage, gain an advantage by uh, committing an, an illegal technical. So <laughs> he was just smart enough to, uh, to figure that one out. And, of course, uh, there was two seconds on the clock, and uh, we had the uh, Garfield Hurd, uh was um, uh, got the ball about, uh, I'd say, 19, 20 feet from the basket, and Don Nelson was on him and played him perfectly, and Heard made the basket. So it went into the third overtime. So, uh, I mean, I, sat, I, I stood there, and they, they kept saying, well, gets the ball where? All right, so what could I say? The official call, I'm not going to... I... I, I uh, uh, it just went up long enough to find out why. And uh, once they made the decision, I went back and um, John Killaway went and talked to them a little bit, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, it took quite a while uh, for the um, uh, uh, situation to develop because Havlicek made the uh, uh, that basket and the crowd thought the game was over. And... Uh, uh, my players were in a locker room already. I had to pull them back out of the locker room. So um, they had quite a bit of time to, uh, uh, you know, come up with what they were going to do. What What's more satisfying for you, winning the winning an NBA title as a player or winning it as a coach? Well, uh, I was uh, on the first Celtic team that won uh, a title. And uh, Russell and I were rookies, and we both had our best games in the seventh game uh, against the Hawks. So uh, uh, winning that was a big deal because uh, uh, we, we were we were both rookies, and uh, uh, so and it was the first title for the team. But being a coach, uh, there's there's more pressure on you to. Uh, uh, to uh, as a player, so when you win one as a coach, it's uh, it, it's it feels better because uh, you've got ten tons of pressure every game, and uh, when you when you win a title, it's uh, wow. Um, let's talk about the end of your coaching career. Um, the last couple of years, you had some clashes with ownership. Uh, you didn't. There were some. Personnel decisions you didn't you didn't particularly agree with. Um, what what was it like when you were w- with Irv Levin? What, what what was that relationship like? Well, Irv Levin was a movie producer and a lawyer and all that stuff, and he came in from L.A. and uh, uh, the key decision was Paul Silas and. Uh, uh, I was the coach of the team. Red was the general manager of the team. So I never got involved with the financials, you know, with the contracts or anything like that. I didn't know who was getting what, uh, you know, down to the penny. I knew generally, but uh, I was never involved in the negotiations. Uh, 
uh, with the players. And Silas uh, had a, a position where somebody screwed up and didn't uh, present his renewal at this a particular time, and that was supposed to be, and he could go free agent. And he uh, was going to, he wanted a lot of money. And Nerve Levin didn't want him to get a lot of money. But Nerve called me up, and uh, I, uh, he said, uh, what do you think about um, uh, Paul Silas? And uh, so he told me how much he wants. I said, well, look, uh, I don't know anything about the figures, but I'm going to tell you this. This guy is the second most important player on our team, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, if we lose him, we're going to lose a lot. And uh, uh, Irv went and... Uh, made a deal to rent, in essence, rent uh, Sidney Wicks, who uh, I guess was then uh, had been traded to New Orleans or something. And uh, we would have his contract, and uh, uh, Portland uh, would have to pay uh, a certain percentage of that salary. So we got him for a reduced salary, and we also got... Um, uh, who's your call? Was he uh, uh, Wicks and Rowe, Curtis Rowe? Now Curtis Rowe, uh, at that particular point, uh, he was a decent player, but uh, far from being, you know, uh, a top-level player. So we ended up with those two players, and everybody thought, "Hey, we made a heck of a deal. Uh, we lost Silas, but look at who we got. We got a score, blah 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 blah." And, um, well, what happened the next year is that uh, without uh, Paul Silas, Collins got upset. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he took off. <laughs> yeah. That's the hiatus. <laughs> That's taxi vacation. driving. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so we were, we were left with Curtis and Rowe, and uh, Curtis ended up playing center a great part of the year. And... Uh, uh, Incidentally, with all of that stuff, uh, they only signed uh, uh, the next season uh, uh, Wicks like the day of our first preseason game. So he didn't uh, he didn't he didn't know uh, anything about what we would do or anything else, uh, and he was thrust in a position of uh, having to play center and. Uh, so I gave him, uh, you know, a playbook, and uh, I'll be damned uh, if he didn't uh, really play the center spot really well. But uh, uh, I, I thought he would be made for, for up-tempo basketball because he was really fast. But something you really don't consider a lot is whether the guy, when he gets out there, can catch the ball. You just assume he he knows how to catch the ball. Right. And Sidney had a heck of a time trying to catch these long passes. He get out there. And, you know, the team started to suffer. And, uh, you know, this, the, the, the whole mor- morale of the team is starting to fall apart. And uh, it, I mean, it, it was very difficult to coach that team. And um, uh, the next year, I didn't even last, you know, I lasted to uh, after uh, 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 first of the year, New Year's, and I got fired. So 
Uh, that was a monkey off my back, but uh, Herb Levin uh, was the one guy that I got involved in in, in a, a decision. And I, I would say this, that I never wanted to be involved in the decision-making uh, uh, like Herb was putting me in. Uh, and Red never wanted any coach of his to be involved in that. So that uh, he more or less kept the coaches away from the ownership. So it wasn't that we were buddy buddy with Herb Levin or you know had a rapport with Herb Levin, but boy, uh, what he did—he just decimated that team and the morale of the team. And and Curtis Rowe ended up with a drug problem. And uh, I, I mean, he's gone through several fortunes of different people, including his father. He never got rehabilitated from his drug addiction, so uh, that was has a difficult time. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, when I left, uh, I was uh, I was kind of happy I left because it was really uh, for the first seven years I coached. All I had to do was look forward and coach the team. In the last couple of years that I was there, I had to look over my shoulder to see who was going to try and knife me in the back. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the whole morale of the team was, the, you know, my the players were talking to the press. And, uh, it, was a, it became a zoo. How close were you to going to Houston? Huh? How close were you to going to Houston at that point? I was very interested in going to Houston. Well, it wasn't at that point. That was several years later. Uh, I think it was like 83 or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was doing radio work uh, for um, the NBA, doing the games on radio. And uh, so people saw me in a... Uh, I had an office a couple of times, you know, immediately after... And I never wanted to go back into it. I, it left a sour taste in my mouth. So uh, they called me up and uh, uh, wanted to uh, go on to become the coach of, uh, of Houston. And uh, and what would uh, uh, what would that be like? Uh, here, Ralph Sampson. They were going to get Ralph Sampson. Uh, they thought, you know. And they ultimately did get Ralph Sampson. But uh, uh, when I went down there, uh, their general manager, Ray Patterson, who I knew because I was uh, president of the Coaches Association and uh, dealt with him as general, uh, general managers in, in getting a pension plan for management people. And uh, so... I had some kind of an, uh, you know, uh, an idea what it was like. But when I got down there and met the owner, and um, it was a, an accountant for a, a group of people that owned, I don't know how many car dealerships, and uh, his partner ended up uh, buying the um, football team up in Minnesota. He also had a, a he owned uh, San Antonio for a while. So, I mean, 
but he didn't know anything about basketball, the owner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I was particularly uh, concerned about the people I was working with, what they would, might be like. And, um, you know, after having uh, worked for Red, where I, I just had a coach, I didn't have to play politics. Uh, and then experiencing the political situation, I, uh, when I left, uh, I was appraising these people about, uh, from a political standpoint, about uh, would I have to cover my back or would they understand? So I tried a couple of players that I would like them to get. And Ray Patterson, who had experience in the NBA, uh, looked at me and questioned me, and it was like he couldn't believe I would ask for the, for the, the guy. And the guy, he was Ronnie Lee. He was a free agent. And Ronnie Lee was a wild man, uh, defensive guy. And he was... A, he was a guy that you could bring off the bench, and he would he would turn, you know, he would turn it into uh, a rat race. Okay, <laughs> and they had no idea about what I would do, even after I explained it to Ray Patterson. And then I just said to myself, "I'm going to spend five years here, and I'm going to constantly be dealing with people that." don't understand what I'm going to do. And uh, so I got on a plane to come home uh, with the guy I brought with me, the agent. And uh, I was sitting, uh, and a a tourist comes up and said, would you like something to drink? I said, you got any champagne? And uh, she says, why, sure, we got champagne. You celebrating something? I said, yeah. She says, well, what are you celebrating? I says, I just turned down a million-dollar deal, <laughs> and I'm the happiest guy in the world that I did. <laughs> uh, that's that's wild. Um, your your relationship with uh, Red Arback as a player, I mean, I, I heard you tell the story about uh, how Red used to get on you so much. I remember you. I heard you tell the story about uh, the rookie stealing your socks or something. Right. Um, and then, but then, as a coach, I mean, how how did that relationship change? What was your relationship with Red like? How did it transform? Well, I had a really great relationship with Red as a player. He, you know, I knew what he was doing. He couldn't yell at Russell. He couldn't yell at Cozy. Bill Sharman, if he yelled at Sharman, Sharman would have punched his lights out. <laughs> Frank Ramsey, if he yelled, if he yelled at Frank Ramsey, he would have gone into a funk. And uh, Luskatov didn't play that much, but he got on him. But I was the guy that he would motivate other people through. <laughs> but uh, while I was playing, sometimes it would get to the point where, like you just mentioned, the rookies started stealing my socks. <laughs> and uh, But I understood what he was doing. And Red and I, while I was a player, used to go to the movies and all the other stuff. And then he asked me... Uh, to be the coach. Then he asked me to do the television. So I was around Red, and I used to hang out with Red uh, uh, when he was he was selling. He was working for a cellophane company, and uh, he knew I knew uh, a C 
sales because I was in a life insurance business, and I would go out with Red when he would meet some of his clients and uh, have lunch with them, you know. So I, I, I knew an awful lot about Red, and uh, Red, Red is a great guy. Uh, he knew exactly how to motivate everybody. That's why I said nobody could could uh, motivate Russell or get Russell to, to really focus on playing other than Red Outback. Uh, you know, I would never have been able to do it. But Red really, he had built up his relationship with Russell. But that's what he did with all his players. Well, Tommy, this has been great, and we've been going for a very long time, so I'm going to let you go and say just thanks for spending so much time talking basketball with me. This has been a, a real, true pleasure and an honor. You got it, buddy. Be Th- good. Again, big thanks to Tommy Heinsohn. Big thanks to NBC Sports Boston for setting this up. And th- this was just a, a really fun week of podcasts. Next week, we continue with the 1980s. Because we did get to, uh, Tommy's perspective on it. We got Danny Ainge's perspective on it. We got that Robert Parrish interview in there. But we still want to talk about that era, that decade. So the conversation continues. And one conversation that, especially because Tommy brought it up in yesterday's podcast, the racial element to the 80s Celtics and how some Boston fans, uh, Boston people, were rooting for the Lakers and how this became, uh, how, how we went down that road. If you watch any of the eighties documentaries, if, if you watch the, the Larry Bird magic Johnson thing, that was a, that was a really underlying element to a lot of this. So I'm going to have Dart Adams on to ta- kind of talk about that element of that. And then we're going to get into the basketball side of that. The eighties were just such a fascinating decade. I really want to stretch this out over those two weeks because it was an important decade, maybe the most important decade for the NBA and the Celtics with Larry Bird and that rivalry with Magic Johnson were so pivotal in saving the NBA that I feel like it deserves to be discussed from multiple angles. So a lot more coming up here on the Locked On Celtics podcast. Still going to work on trying to get more guests. We still have the the 90s. Oh man, the 90s. Uh, we got the 90s to talk about. We've got the 2000s, and then we're going to get into the 2010s. It's 2020, and we're starting a new decade, so we're going to get right up to the current day. That means we're going to get into the Kyrie Irving stuff. We're going to get into all of that. So all of that is still coming up as we navigate this hiatus. So subscribe to the podcast if you haven't, and Make sure that you are following on Spotify if you use Spotify. If you are a subscriber, go ahead and give it a five-star rating and a good written review. Those reviews and those ratings have made the Lockdown Celtics podcast the number one Boston Celtics podcast in the world. And I always say this, and I really do mean it from the bottom of my heart. I very much appreciate the fact that you guys have taken the time to do all of these these things that I ask on uh, a daily basis after every podcast really do thank you because it means so much to me that you are are really willing to do that and help me out that way so thanks for listening to this amazing week um i've I've really enjoyed putting it out there share the podcast tell your friends to listen to the lockdown celtics podcast we're part of the lockdown podcast network
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Thank you.